Welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, Camden Burt, and I'm an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I am very excited to introduce my guests today, Drs. Andrew Klump, Pamela Reine Kerberg, and Rebecca Kennard. Andrew Klump is an editor of the Annals of Iowa at the State Historical Society of Iowa. He received his PhD from Southern Methodist University. In his role as editor, he oversees all aspects of the production of the Annals of Iowa, administers the Society's Research Grants for Authors and Dissertation Fellows program, and contributes to a variety of programming throughout the larger Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. His personal research explores the intersection of religion, settler colonialism, and imperialism in the 19th century rural Midwest. He is currently completing his manuscript entitled Religion and Rural Internationalism in the 19th century Midwest. Pamela Reine Kerberg joined the history department at Iowa State University in 2000 after spending nine years at Illinois State University. She is currently distinguished professor of history and teaches a wide variety of courses from food history to rural and agricultural history to the US and the first half of the 20th century. She is the author of a number of books, including Rooted in Dust, Surviving Drought and Depression in Southwestern Kansas, and Childhood on the Farm, Work, Play, and Coming of Age in the Midwest, and the editor of the Routledge History of Rural America. She is a fellow of the Agricultural History Society, and in 2022, University Press of Kansas will publish her new book on Iowa and the farm crisis of the 1980s. Rebecca Kennard is a professor of history emeritus at Middle Tennessee State University and former director of the MTSU Public History Program. Long active in the National Council on Public History, she served as its president from 2002 to 2003. She is also a public history practitioner who has worked extensively in California, Tennessee, and her native state of Iowa. Her publications in the field of public history include Benjamin Shambaugh and the Intellectual Foundations of Public History published in 2002, along with several articles and books and chapters. She has also published extensively on the history of parks, including Places of Quiet Beauty, Parks, Preserves, and Environmentalism, as well as Iowa State Parks, A Century of Stewardship, 1920-2022. to Currently, she serves as co-editor of Parks Stewardship Forum, co-published by the George Wright Society and the Institute for Parks, People, and Biodiversity at UC Berkeley. She holds a PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and an MA from UCLA. All three of these panelists contributed to a recent issue of the Annals of Iowa. This was an 175th anniversary issue published in the fall of 2021. The issue provides both a really interesting discussion on Iowa history, but it also provides a compelling lens to examine the place and importance of state and local history. It should also be noted that this issue was recently awarded uh, an award of excellence from the American Association for State and Local History. Well, I'm really excited uh, to talk about the special issue of the Annals of Iowa. Uh, but before we jump into sort of the particulars of the issue, uh, Andrew, perhaps you could give us uh, just a brief introduction uh, to the journal, its mission, and its audience. And then perhaps you could give the listeners some background on what led to the creation of this particular special issue. Sure, I'm really happy to do that. Uh, so the Annals of Iowa is the scholarly quarterly history journal that's published here uh, by the State Historical Society of Iowa. The journal itself was founded in 1863 um, with only a few breaks in its publication history, which you can read about in Rebecca's essay uh, as well. Uh, but other than those breaks, it's been published throughout the subsequent about 159 years uh, that we've been doing this work. The journal's done different things at different times, uh, but now we really are that quarterly scholarly history journal. And the mission really is to put forth thought-provoking history to satisfy all kinds of readers and people who are interested in Iowa's past. Um, so the Annals is more than just a rehashing of anecdotes, if you will, right? It's about thinking about the deeds and misdeeds and accomplishments of Iowans and show how those actions fit into larger mosaics of Iowa's past, um, of the nation's past, and, and really of the world. We, we try to have a, that kind of broad uh, engagement. 
as far as our audience goes, it's, it's really rather diverse. Our subscribers range from academic historians um, and the, their universities. We have a lot of universities that subscribe, but we also have everyday history enthusiasts like my grandma, right? Um, or your local library often will have a copy. And we even now have a nice cohort of artists um, who have connected to our work through the work that we did in this last issue. So we've got a really broad audience, which can be challenging at times too, when you're working with authors to make sure that we're scratching the itch that everybody has when they come to us, right? So we're giving that kind of hard-hitting history, but we're also presenting it in ways that are accessible to those who maybe just want to learn about Iowa's past and they're just really serious about it. So that's kind of in a two minutes, what, what it is we do and where we came from and what we're trying to do. And, and really, we stand on so many wonderful folks who've gone before us. And you can read about that again in, in Rebecca's essay. But I, I, I would be remiss not to mention the great work my predecessor, Marv Bergman, did, um, who actually won in a Midwestern History Conference Lifetime Achievement Award, right? Um, he, he really kind of set us up to take these steps um, with this issue and, and, and to be moving forward to the future. Um, and this special issue was really framed around celebrating the 175th anniversary of Iowa statehood, which happened last year. Um, and this kind of came about because the state archivist popped into my office one day and said, hey, what do you think uh, the annals could do for, for the 175th? And I said, well, maybe a special issue. And one thing led to another. And we landed with this wonderful product. And, and really the goal was to kind of set a mile marker, if you will, for people to see where Iowa history has been, where it is right now, and where people hope to see it go in the future. And you'll see that in Pam's essay, in Rebecca's essay, but you also see that in the shorter review essays that we've pulled out that try to sketch for people who maybe are new to Iowa history. This is what we've done. And this is where we think we are right now. And this is where we hope to go to the in the future so that in 25 years from now, on Iowa's 200th anniversary, we can come back and see where we've gone since then. Um, but also it gives a great avenue in for new folks. And I would also mention, uh, as I'm wrapping up this kind of broad overview, this has also been a wonderful partnership uh, with the Iowa Arts Council. And so the Iowa Arts Council came on board with us. We're all together under the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs, along with Produce Iowa, the film office. But I was talking to colleagues, and that's it's really um, where we came up with this wonderful collaboration with Iowa artists. So the cover it features a specially commissioned art uh, artwork by Molly Wood, who's a Des Moines-based author, and then or artist, excuse me, she's a Des Moines-based artist. And then we also have 16 inserts, full-color inserts by Iowa artists as well. And what I love about those is they paired with each of the essays. And so you can see um, Akwi Engi, who's a Cedar Rapids-based artist, her reflections on race and Iowa in her artwork. But then you can also read Ashley Howard's review essay on race and Iowa. And so as historians and artists, um, they're being true to who they are um, and to their, to their discipline while also being in conversation with each other, which was another really interesting and exciting collaboration that this issue offered. So we were doing great history, but also partnering with our artist colleagues to, to do something exciting and new. So that, that's enough for now to kind of give you the lay of the land, I think. Yeah, thank you for that. And that, yeah, you know, podcasting is, is such a great medium in some ways, but unfortunately it's just like, it is a visually stunning issue. Uh, and it's just maybe maybe find a way to get some images up when we publish this out. But it, it is something to look at as well. And, and that's really sort of a, a creative yeah. endeavor. And we do have copies for sale if folks want, want to, to purchase it. You know, like I'm happy to put those in the mail for folks. Uh, we did we did have a few extras from from the run. Perfect. Love it. Um, well, I do want to explore some of the 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 main articles of the issue uh, that we discussed. You know, a lot of larger themes about local history, audiences. And really the significance, as you said, uh, um, uh, about state and regional history. And, and perhaps we can start with you, uh, Pam, and discuss your piece. Um, your essay gets at some of the problems, pitfalls, as well as the promise of local history by focusing on some select aspects of Iowa history. Um, you go on to write, it is often easier to look at the history of the nation from the top down, privileging how a conflict or problem was resolved from above or experienced by political, social, or economic elite. That perspective smooths out some of the wrinkles and makes it easier to speak in generalities. And you go on to say, those generalities, however, may distort the view of the way the events played out in individual states. And those generalities may say nothing at all about how individuals experience events in their hometowns. Um, perhaps you could uh, inform the listeners or give a few examples of how these national generalities have overlooked uh, some of the local history in a place like Iowa. 
when Andrew asked me to write this piece, I had to sit there and think hard about what it was that I wanted to talk about in relation to Iowa history. And I decided to pick some of what I considered surprises in Iowa history, uh, stories that you wouldn't normally expect to find when studying Iowa history. And one of those first stories that I picked was uh, Sarah Eggie's research on suffrage in the upper Midwest. And you, when we study the topic of women's suffrage, it's very much from the top down. And you completely miss that there were rural women who were concerned about the topic of suffrage. And she discovered in the course of her research that they went about selling suffrage in rural communities in a different way. Uh, in urban areas, you could have the woman on the street corner orating and everybody would have the opportunity to listen. Uh, she could reach a large number of people that way. While you stand on a corner in rural America and orate and all you may be talking to is the cows. And so what's important in Iowa is the written word. And they published pamphlets by the bushel bucket full, I mean, tons of pamphlets, and handed those out. And, you know, we don't know exactly how people responded to them, but we know that, we know now that the, the written word was much more important in rural areas than it was in other areas. And we also learned through her research that they had to tailor make the approach in each of the Midwestern states she discusses because people were concerned about different things in different places. It turns out in Iowa, lots of farmers were afraid that giving women the vote was going to increase taxes. It was going to cost them money. And so they gathered evidence from states where women already had the right to vote to show that that wasn't the case. And so her story of women seeking the right to vote in Iowa is significantly different than what you find in a place like Chicago or New York City. Another place where I turned was to Dorothy Sweeter's marvelous history of Buxton, Iowa. And what's important about Buxton is that it was an anomaly. It was a place where there was no segregation. There was, there was no official segregation. There was some voluntary segregation on the part of individuals who lived there, but there was no officially handed down race line. And how that happened was that Mr. Buxton, who owned this company town where the Buxton Coal Company dug up coal, did not believe in segregation. He believed that individuals should be judged on their own merits, and anybody who was a segregationist was asked to, well, was told that they perhaps would be happier elsewhere. And so you have in this little city in Iowa a completely different story about race, where people were assigned housing with no regard to race where people went to the movies and could sit next to anybody they wanted to. Children went to school where there was no segregation. But what the story of Buxton also tells us is that what happened in one small place in Iowa could be completely different from what happened down the road. If people from Buxton went to Adele, and wanted to sit at the lunch counter, they had to be white. So just 10 miles away, there was a completely different racial story going on. And the final story I chose uh, to talk about these Iowa surprises uh, is that of marriage equality in Iowa. Iowa was very early on board with that, which just stunned people. Uh, when the Iowa Supreme Court ruled in favor of marriage equality, I got emails from all around the country from people saying, what's going on in Iowa? Yeah. Well, it turns out that the Iowa Supreme Court actually has a, a very long 
history of, of these rather unusual civil rights decisions. And so while it looked on the surface that this should be a huge surprise uh, to many in Iowa, it wasn't quite as much of a surprise as it seemed. Uh, so state and local history gives us the opportunity to look below the surface, to see how stories play out on Main Street, and to discover that our state is perhaps not just as we thought it was, and that there are different stories that we can find if we just care enough to look farther. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And you also note that it's sort of on the flip side of that argument, right? In other ways, local history has been used to stand in for national events. Uh, you, you describe this clearly uh, when you talk about the farm crisis, right? Uh, and it's something that you've been thinking about a lot lately. Uh, you know, h- how did Iowa come to re- represent the national farm crisis of the 1980s? Iowa came to represent the farm crisis relatively easily. Um, I think part of it is its location. It is the heart of the country. It is right there in the middle, and it's known for corn and soybeans and hogs and cattle. And so part of it is that, you know, if you're going to talk about farms, there are very few places that are more agriculturally oriented in this country than Iowa. But that's just part of the story. Uh, The movie Country, Mm -hmm. uh, which Jessica Lange directed and acted in, was set in Iowa. The story that she, well, the photograph that she saw that inspired her to think of this was from Ohio. But when she went to set her story, she set it in Iowa. She researched it in Iowa. Hmm. And so it became, you know, this, this movie that for many people embodied the crisis was very much an Iowa story. Mm-hmm. Um, in a less positive way, one of the most shocking events of the farm crisis was also an Iowa story. Um, In an era when mass shootings were highly uncommon, a man named Dale Burr uh, killed his wife, and then he went to town and killed a banker, and then he killed a neighbor, and he shot at uh, at the neighbor's wife and six-year-old child, but thankfully missed them. Uh, Then he killed himself. And this was front page news in the New York Times, Mm -hmm. the Chicago Tribune, the LA Times. It was this nationwide shocking story Mm -hmm. also set in Iowa. And and whenever reporters wrote about it, they said it, you know, they made sure that people knew that it was in Iowa. But Iowa also was the home to lots of really remarkable activists and people who are willing to talk about what was going on. Um, Some of these, like Denise O'Brien, were grassroots activists. Uh, Some of them worked for Iowa Extension, people like Joan Blundell um, and Paul Lasley. They were very much in the public eye, and they were some of the most quoted people nationwide about the farm crisis. Uh, Governor Terry Branstad, was quite young when all of this was going on, very photogenic. He also was very noisy about the farm crisis. And so there were all of these Iowans who were talking about the nationwide situation, but were obviously rooted in this place. Mm -hmm. And people very much associated what was happening with Iowa for lots and lots of good reasons. Yeah. And, and actually after reading your piece, I I made sure to go and watch the movie country, which I had not seen. Uh, Mm. and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's out there. It's easy to access. I don't know. It's sort of one of those cultural, um, icons, like you say, a movie about Iowa, which is, you know, not always common too as well. Right. It's, it's a powerful Mm -hmm. film, but it is not, an uplifting film. No, no, and no. It didn't, it, it, in other parts of the country, it did not get the kind of box office that folks were expecting. But, uh, and there were some people who didn't like it, but for the most part, in Iowa, 
people really thought of it as their movie, their plea uh, to the nation about what was happening in their state. Yeah, it's 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 certainly sort of a, a powerful movie, and, and yes, not not an uplifting movie at all either. No. Um, <laughs> I wonder if there is a downside to this as well. Um, do you see a risk? And again, this is just something I was thinking about as I was reading your piece. Do you see a risk that these histories, such as the farm crisis in Iowa, sort of become a caricature in a national dialogue? Uh, does Iowa, in a sense, become essentialized uh, in a larger national discourse about you know what is Iowa and Iowa history? Right. Um, there, there is a tendency to look at that moment and to think that that's all there is to be said, mm-hmm. uh, either about the crisis or about Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I've just finished writing a book about Iowa and the crisis. But at the same time, it all has to be put into a larger perspective. And it wasn't just all about Iowa. Um Iowa lost 24% of its farms during that decade, but Wisconsin did too. And Minnesota lost 27% and Illinois lost 29%. So the upper Midwest story is big and it's painful. Uh, What also needs to be mentioned is that a number of the uh, ideas that Iowa government adopted as a result of the farm crisis actually had their start in Minnesota and made their way south from Minnesota. Governor Rudy Perpich in Minnesota was very active in trying to alleviate the problem of the crisis. Um, Additionally, some of the the activist moments uh, found their way south from Minnesota. Uh, the idea of recreating penny auctions where people go to auctions and bid nothing uh, for Mm -hmm. the farmer's goods and the farmer's land moved south from Minnesota during the farm crisis. Uh, So you have to put Iowa in this Midwest context, but you also have to remember this is nationwide across the whole United States. 15% of farms disappeared during that decade. And there was trouble in California. There was trouble for farmers in New England. Um, in the South, there was really serious trouble for farmers. So when you think about that decade, it's important not to say, oh, okay, this one story tells it all. Mm-hmm. It needs to be thought of in a broader context so we don't lose all of the layers of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's well put. Um, it, and so much of this conversation about, you know, regional history and local history and state history has so much to do with audience, uh, in particular, who's, you know, consuming this history and how it, that shapes the histories that are being written and published. Uh, and this brings me, of course, to your wonderful essay, uh, Rebecca, in which you outline a trajectory of historical publishing from 1857 to the present day. You argue that there has been, in some way, an interplay between author and audience, which has guided historical publishing uh, for the past century and a half. And you track a series of editors and their publications who held different views about how history should be written and distributed. Um, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share with listeners what inspired you to investigate the history of uh, historical publishing for this, issue, for this essay, for this particular issue. Well, you hit on the key word, which is audience. Um, And I would begin by saying that my career as a public historian, both as a practitioner and public history educator, really inclines me to focus on audience. Um, You know, a concern for audience, how history can be made useful for or accessible to either the broad general public or to particular audiences is one of the things that helps define public history as a separate field. And you know that, yeah. (laughs) So when Andrew asked me to consider writing an essay for um, the 175th anniversary issue, I somewhat naturally began thinking about the audiences for Iowa history and how I might tap into the role of audience in shaping the content and presentation for Iowa history. 
Now, audience is a pretty nebulous concept, and there really is no way to state with any certainty that audience has played any definitive role in shaping mm -hmm. Iowa history. So I had to think about whether this was even a meaningful question or approach. And ultimately I decided that it was. And my earlier work on Benjamin Shambaugh influenced my thinking because during his four decades of leading the state historical society, Shambaugh was always concerned about the audiences for Iowa history. So as I massaged the idea of audience, it eventually occurred to me that editors and publishers function in many ways as mediators between those who want to write history or about history and those who want to learn about history. And that's how I came to frame my essay historiographically in this case, looking at the history of historical publishing in relation to Iowa history. So. I, uh, you mentioned uh, Benjamin uh, Shambaugh, and I was, I, right. as I was reading that, I was drawn to that narrative of Benjamin Shambaugh and the Iowa School of Research Historians, uh, who have such a very interesting uh, place in, in sort of the distribution of historical information. How did Shambaugh envision, you know, his role in producing history, his audience? And what does that sort of tell us about that particular moment and movement uh, for historical publishing? Um, in a nutshell, Shambaugh's concept of the audience for Iowa history was what I would call the educated public. And by that, I mean men and women who, for the most part, had more than a high school education and would have been part of the professional class, which was emerging in the late 19th and early 20th century. So community leaders, educators, elected officials at both the local and state levels. Um, that is the main audience that he had in mind. And relate, in relation to that, the Iowa School of Research Historians that you mentioned um, was really, I think, one of the more interesting aspects of the State Historical Society in the early 20th century and an undertaking that epitomized what Shambaugh called applied history or producing history that could make a direct contribution to the public welfare. And he always, commonwealth and public welfare are two terms that are just shot throughout his writings and um, the works that come out of the State Historical Society. Um, we might call that type of research policy studies today, um, but the men and women who made up the Iowa School of Research Historians, mainly men, but there were some women, produced studies on a rather wide variety of contemporary issues, that is, contemporary to that particular time period. So child labor, taxation, poor relief, um, banking, the, even the status of women, agricultural economics, it was very wide ranging. But those studies were produced for a very specific audience, and that was lawmakers, and particularly the state legislature. And the goal was to foster more informed policymaking, pure and simple. And, and that was something that was really near and dear to Shambaugh's heart, I think. Um, in the bigger picture, the Iowa School of Research Historians reflects the progressive political climate in Iowa and the Midwest more generally during the early 20th century and what I would call an optimistic belief that scholarly studies with a historical perspective could help legislators better understand the complexities of social and economic problems that they were facing. Um, many of the historical society's publications from the 1910s into the early 1930s came from the work of the Iowa School of Research Historians. Overall, um, that the Iowa School was an important component of where Shambaugh was steering the Historical Society's publishing program 
more toward the academic side. And that, of course, reflected his own dual career as a university professor in political economy with a background, strong background in history and the administrator of the State Historical Society. Yeah, it's, again, just struck with this sort of, um, as I was reading that, just imagining sort of this group, you know, a large group of historians who are doing sort of interesting studies and, and having a faith that their, you know, their scholarship would actually inform policymaking. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a wonderful picture of the Iowa School of Research historians, and it, it really is this group, um, a rather large group of men and women who are all seated at their individual reading tables with their lamps and they are working on their own projects. You know, it's a wonderful photograph. How did sort of that earlier vision of historical publishing differ from, let's say, and again, I just want to sort of congratulate in a matter of a few pages, you sort of track this trajectory of historical publishing. But how does that earlier vision uh, differ from some of the more popular publications that come later in the 20th century? Um, what does that tell us sort of about historical publishing over the course of that 20th century as well? Yeah, that's a, a, a big chunk. Um, first, I want to say that legislators and policymakers were not the only audience that concerned mm. Stambaugh. And the chief marker of that is the, pal the uh, popular magazine, The Palimpsest, which... Mm the State Historical Society launched in 1920. And it was one of the first popular history magazines in the country. Um, much later, the Palimpsest would become Iowa Heritage Illustrated and it is no longer published, I, I'm sorry to say. But it had a very long life and an important life in terms of promoting popular history. Um, after World War II, more historians across the country began to worry that not enough attention was being paid to general audiences. So American, two examples, American Heritage Magazine launched in 1949, and that initially was published by the American Association of State and, for State and Local History, which started as a special interest area within the American Historical Association and then became an independent um, organization in 1947. Both AASLH and American Heritage signified that shift in the historical profession. In Iowa, the shift is marked in a couple of ways. First, William Peterson became head of the State Historical Society in 1947 and he had been with the society since 1930 as a research associate. But when he became the director, one of his priorities was to increase membership. And his main strategy for doing this was to revamp the Palimpsest, the popular history magazine. And he did that by expanding the subject matter and by adding illustrations. Um, Pioneer history and political history were still mainstay topics, but Peterson began balancing the content with social, cultural, and natural history topics. You know, he even introduced sports history. You know, in the nineteen in that post-war period. In about 1950, well, not in about it was in 1950. He introduced illustrations and they were mainly historic photographs. And that particular change is really what began to attract new readers. And by 1970, that 20 year period, the society's membership had grown from roughly 1,000 to 10,000. Mm -hmm. And he also targeted um, the pop popular history in the schools. He really tried to get that magazine out to teachers to use in the, their teaching. The other thing that marks the shift toward popular history is Iowa's centennial of statehood, which was in 1946. So that was 75 years ago. 
Um, and then after the statewide celebration, towns and cities began to mark their own centennials with commemorative histories. Um, and in many cases, these were reprints or updates of um, the historical atlases or what we lovingly call the county history mug books um, that marked the late 19th, early 20th century. Now, the same thing, you know, um, the same thing was happening in other states, I should add, but, you know, particularly little states who came into the Union in the mid 19th century. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, towns and cities were began to produce their own um, histories, and during the latter part of the 20th century, more than a thousand of these town, city, and county histories were produced locally, and that was, of course, happening in other states. Um, so much so that there was enough interest nationwide to attract commercial publishers who began gravitating to the local history market and now have largely taken it over. We're all familiar with the coffee table book format that's dominated by historic photographs and loosely held together with a brief narrative. Um, that really, in many ways, has come to define what we think of as local history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that sort of segues nicely into sort of my next thought here, which is you track, as you know, like these coffee table books do for a lot, do for a lot of people sort of stand in as the sort of history of a particular place. Um, and, and so there's this gulf or this difference between sort of maybe history and, and popular history or heritage. And, and towards the end of the essay, you argue that there seems to be an ever growing gulf between the two. Um, you write, and this is from your essay, while both popular history and scholarly history appear to be thriving at this moment, it also seems as though the distance between the two has grown. One of the mantras of historical training is that by examining the unvarnished past, we gain insight into issues that confront us in the present. When historians and others are faulted for being negative in their assessments of the past or critical discussions of our unvarnished history are avoided, my eyebrows raise. Um, I suspect this is a concern of all of us here, uh, and we've been, you know, perhaps all of us have been confronted or criticized for doing critical historical work at some point in our careers. Uh, I'm curious, uh, Rebecca, if you could talk a bit more about that dilemma. Uh, I know it's something you've thought about a lot as well with your work in public history. Um, but what is lost uh, when the public becomes uncomfortable with critical history and instead chooses the publishing program of commercialized heritage or nostalgia? I'll try to be brief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. That's, that's uh, you know, it's a whole podcast series in itself, but yeah. So as I was finishing my essay, the Iowa legislature passed HF 802, which was titled An Act Providing for Requirements Related to Racism or Sexism Training at and diversity and inclusion effort by governmental agencies and entities, school districts, and public post-secondary educational institutions. What we now are short, shorthand is squashing any discussion of critical race theory. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that went into effect July 1, 2021 in Iowa. And as you said, like you and most everyone else I know, um, the alarm bells went off. And events since then have pretty much confirmed that our apprehensions are justified. But to tie this into your question of what is lost when the public becomes uncomfortable with unvarnished history and chooses, chooses commercialized nostalgia instead, I think the basic loss is the incentive as well as the ability to think critically. Mm. You know, we live in a society where policymaking is increasingly driven by ideology and where groups holding minority beliefs are attempting to redefine societal norms. It, it has become a very powerful struggle for political mm. power. And in that struggle, 
schools have become targets. So now not only are they targets of gun violence, which Pam alluded to, but they also are targets for imprinting ideology. Um, in the past year in Iowa and elsewhere, we've watched various individuals and groups attempt to suppress books and teaching materials that address LGBTQ culture and history, as well as African-American perspectives on the history and legacy of slavery. Um, and those are only the two most prominent, I think. Um, that law and other states have similar laws, but Iowa's law, um, you know, here is one more breeze fanning the flames of America's divisive politics and this time I might point out under the guise of outlawing training and education that is disingenuously being labeled as itself as divisive. Mm -hmm. um, history, more than any other subject, has been caught up in this snare. Um, there is nothing inherently wrong with popular history and heritage. In fact, they are important elements in the panoply of produced history but at the same time, U.S. history and American government are, thankfully, still required subjects in the high school curriculum. And teachers must be able to encourage, even challenge students to think through the complexities of the past based on historical evidence. This is how critical thinking skills are developed, you know, History doesn't have any claim on that, but in history, that's what we contribute. And simply mandating that teachers present what's called both sides of contested history simply doesn't accomplish that same goal. Hmm. Um, you know, we could get sidetracked on this issue, but I've made my point, so I'll yield the microphone, um, especially if Pam and Andrew want to chime in with their thoughts on this. Yeah, I'm... Andrew, I, I can turn it uh, back to you. I, as someone who probably thinks about, you know, these themes on a, a regular basis, I'm curious, as you know, as an editor, right? How do you see the Annals of Iowa working to publish state and local history while maintaining sort of a critical historical interrogation? Yeah, I, I think um, as I think about this question, you know, I think the Annals in some ways is a good example or maybe that state and local history can also be critical historical interrogation, right? That, that we are very much um, very self-consciously doing state and local history, but we also are holding uh, an, an appreciation for critical historical interrogation. We're doing both. Um, mm -hmm. And at that very, that's a very, very much at the core of what we do. And that kind of challenges an assumption that you either have heritage, which is very local or critical history, which is much more broad. And, and we're trying to do both. Um, and, and, and so, you know, with that kind of said, you know, that we really would say that the annals does both. Um, I think there are a few hallmarks, maybe if you look at what we're doing, that kind of position us in that field, right. That of doing both. And, you know, as far as state and local history, I think, we have the wonderful benefit of focusing on one state, which which gives us some good parameters, um, but it also gives us great connections to where people live, um, the stories they have to tell. You know, Pam mentioned this uh, with kind of her hometowns and main streets, right? I, I think about our readers, you know, when they read us, they, they're think, reading about places where they live or have lived um, and maybe have new perspectives on popular stories they've heard in, in ways that there's a real tangible connection um, uh, that, that's profoundly local. It also reflects this kind of best practices. I think about my own experience. I grew up in Northwest Iowa, and I always heard myths about Ink Paduta, who is a Dakota leader up there. Um, in uh, was a Dakota leader in the eight, eighteen mid eighteen hundreds. You know, primarily in 1850s, 1850s, 60s. Um, is what he's known for. Um, but I heard stories about him my whole life, and then we published an article about him, right, um, in, in our in our one of our recent issues by Kevin Mason, and and in that way, right. 
as I'm working with Kevin on his article, he's talking about places like Peterson, which is where I went on a school trip, right? Or he's talking about Spirit Lake, which is where I used to go in the summer with my family. And he's rearranging this mythology that I heard as a child, and but he's doing it with critical history, right? Um, the same mm-hmm. is true with uh, this wonderful piece we had by Anthony Miller about Chinese immigrants um, to Iowa, which was an, an issue earlier this year. And what I love about that is he's talking about these things that are happening in Des Moines, which are also on my commute to work, right? So he's positioning this story in larger histories of Iowa and immigration, of Sino-American relations. But also I drive by the restaurant that came from the laundry that was founded by the immigrants that are talked about in the essay, right? It's so tangibly local um, while also being rigorously historical. And so I think that's maybe where you see the local um, and state history come out with us is that is we're not talking about kind of in broad strokes anymore. We're giving those really tangible perspectives. But, but some of the other things I'd mention is that we do take a broad view of, of what constitutes Iowa and Iowa history, right? Um, I think about a, a piece that was published several years ago by my predecessor about um, bloodhounds and this regiment that was working in um, in South Carolina, right? But they were Iowans who were afield, right? So they're talking about Iowans who are outside of Iowa, but self-consciously Iowan. Um, or we had a great article by uh, Patrick Young, uh, who wrote an essay for us in the special issue, but he, he published another with us earlier this year about uh, indigenous people, particularly the Meskwaki and the Sauk, um, but they were all existing in this different regional configuration than what we think of today, which was in the upper Mississippi and western Great Lakes. So this was an Iowa story, but was very much oriented toward the Great Lakes, which we often don't do in Iowa. But I think that's one of the things that critical historical interrogation does for us Mm -hmm. is that we're able to get out of those borders while still be self-consciously local. And then kind of the last thing um, before kind of what I would mention is we, we also ask that kind of so what question a lot of our authors, right? Um, it's not enough to bring an interesting story about Iowa, which I love, and I want you to bring them to me, and I want to talk to you about your interesting stories. But to make it in our journal, we also want to be thinking about how does this matter for how we understand Iowa history, for U.S. history, for global history, any subfield of history? I'm, I, I, I'm, we're pretty broad. As long as you can answer the so what question for someone, we're, we're interested in, in including that story and you're located in Iowa. Um, but, but that's another hallmark of that critical thought, right? And I often will work with authors who are local historians and help them get to that point where they're asking that question, right? And I think that's one of the things that we balance here too. We're not um, we're not the William and Mary Quarterly, for example, right? Which is pretty much only exclusively working with academically trained scholars, um, often with PhDs or maybe an occasional graduate student. I work with all kinds of folks, um, and if they can develop that kind of so what question and that kind of thinking, we'll, we'll do that work. And so we we have that accessibility, which is another hallmark of that local orientation, but also in kind of terms and with uh, standards that we would associate with, with scholarship. And so, so that's kind of where I see us positioned, how we try to balance that and challenge the assumption that state and local history isn't necessarily critical historical interrogation, right? That we can be both, um, but that requires us to be a little more nimble and, and to think a little more broadly. We also have a peer review process, right? Which also checks that critical historical mm-hmm. er- interrogation part, but that's a little less interesting to talk about than some of the other hallmarks. <laughs> I love using this material with my undergraduates because they are really captured by history. And most of my undergraduates are Iowans, not all of them, but most of them. And they love hearing about stories that are close to home. And they love thinking, wow, you know, this happened close to home? And what I'm thinking about is a wonderful article that uh, Dorothy Schweder wrote, oh, it's more than 20 years ago now, about the Ku Klux Klan in Iowa. And about the, and and this is a, a story set in Northwest Iowa, where there most of the tension was between Protestants and Catholics. And, you know, the the Protestants are burning crosses and what appears to be perhaps 
an organization affiliated with the Catholics Knights of Columbus is fighting back and they're burning circles in the front yards of the people who they think are burning crosses. And my students have this moment of, huh, okay, this was really happening in this place where I grew up. And, and yes, it really was happening there. They are fascinated with those stories and they can then ask questions about them. They can then think about them. Then they can take the article to their parents and say, did you know about this? Mm -hmm. And it's this wonderful avenue into a depth of thought that you might not otherwise be able to access. Because once it is in a place that either they've been or they can imagine, then it opens up all sorts of avenues for thinking in the classroom that I just love. Um, and so, the, so my next question, it's really for everyone, it's kind of building on this conversation that we're having, um, is what if we take this local state perspective um, that, that you've all been thinking about quite a bit and, and producing your pieces and expand it a little bit to the Midwest, um, which is a region that's obviously larger than a particular state uh, and it may be even harder to define geographically, uh, but still sort of fits into this sort of local and or national paradigm. It's also a region with several publishing bodies with uh, different aims. I'm willing. I'm curious if you might be willing to comment on sort of the state of Midwestern studies as you see it, and and publishing, and and how do you see some of your arguments map onto this this field of Midwestern studies and Midwestern history? I think Midwestern history is becoming much more self conscious. There were a whole bunch of decades there where people were doing Midwestern history, but they weren't calling it that and they weren't thinking about how their work fit into this larger body of states. And it's become much more self-conscious in the last decade, I think much more active. Uh, there's more Midwestern history being written. And I think because of this, it's encouraged more full-fledged historians, more graduate students to think of it as legitimate. Uh, I was trained at the University of Wisconsin in the 1980s, but there was very little, you know, interestingly enough, major university, middle of the Midwest, very little Midwestern history going on there because that was somehow viewed as, as parochial, as less than. And I hope, I think, what's happened more recently is that Historians have done a better job of explaining, yes, this is important. History happened here. You don't have to be on either coast. You don't have to be in a big city to be talking about moments that are important to the United States as a nation. And that's, I think, the main strength of what's happened in the last decade. Yeah, I would agree with, um, definitely agree with Pam um, that we're becoming more conscious about Midwestern history and how the experience of one region of the Midwest fits in, fits with the experience elsewhere. Um, I lived in Tennessee for 18 years and during that time, um, you'd have to be deaf and dumb not to realize that um, publishers in the southern states have spent decades cultivating southern history. And to where now there would be southern women's history or southern agricultural history. So there are... Uh, subdisciplines of Southern history. We aren't there yet in the Midwest, but I think we're getting there. Um, and I would say that I saw that when I was working on this essay, I saw that beginning to happen with the university presses. 
Iowa State University Press and University of Iowa Press really were beginning to take, you know, move in that direction. Um, unfortunately, Iowa State Press is no longer publishing. Um, but at one time, it was really a powerhouse in agricultural history. And um, in that instance, the scope was nationwide, not just the Midwest, and certainly not just Iowa. Um, and the University of Iowa Press was doing that as well, um, although UI Press is kind of pulled back from history a little bit. Well, actually quite a bit now, to the point where Annals of Iowa is really where scholarly history is being published uh, in Iowa. But I think there is generally um, more of um, um, not, I think there's a more openness to look beyond the borders and to cast one's um, inquiry, you know, beyond the state borders with any topic. I know you thought a lot about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I certainly, uh, you know, all of these things resonate with me, uh, you know, or, or, and I, I, I echo them, you know, and so, you know, what I would add, or maybe how I'm thinking about the journal, right, um, is that, you know, kind of an assumption that we bring in with the annals, right, is that Iowa history matters. Um, and, it, and it matters not just for the obvious fields of Iowa or Iowa history or agricultural or political history, which is often where people put us into conversation, but so many different subfields and contexts, right? Like, I want to be a part of those conversations, and and, and we should be. Um, and, and we take as kind of a base assumption in our work, right, that Iowa history matters, Midwestern history matters, um, and we're going to kind Kind of walk into a room and 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 own our ability to have a conversation there. I mean, I did my doctoral training in Texas, and so maybe some of that comes from being around so many Texas state historians because they never question whether Texas history mattered, right, um, or whether you could bring a Texas topic to a national organization, right? It always mattered. It was. And, 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 and I think we can have that too. And I think there's something to be said about the arguments that we're making um, with this special issue even, right? The argument that Iowa's state and local history matters and that our borders are broader and our thinking is broader. That those are arguments that we bring to Midwestern history, right? Um, that, that the Midwest is this kind of 12 state definition, but it's also a lot more than that. And sometimes it's bigger and sometimes it's smaller. And there are different groups here and that we can enter into spaces um, you know, with the ability to stand and, and do that. And, and, and I think the annals too, uh, in balancing this, this identity and this Midwestern history, you know, the development of Midwestern history also sits in a place where we're engaging with Midwestern history. We, we review a lot of Midwestern history books, not just Iowa history, uh, but we're also going to review academic histories of Iowa, but we're also going to review local histories and memoirs of significant Iowans, right? So we're in this interesting place where a lot of these things can come together. And I think that's also an element of what Midwestern history can do at its best, right, is bringing together the, the heritage, um, the kind of local and state history that maybe isn't adopting critical historical interrogation, but putting those folks in conversation with, with others. And the Annals tries to do that. I know there's another, there's wonderful journals throughout this, the, the region to Kansas history. I work with uh, probably the most often. Kristen Epps is there, a wonderful editor. Um, I work with her quite a bit, but there's other wonderful, wonderful journals. And so I, that, that's kind of a long way of saying, you know, like at the annals, we're going to we're going to hustle and we're going to produce excellent work and we're going to continue to equip authors and scholars and research researchers to make powerful contributions to Iowa history, but also much more broadly. And I think that's where these arguments align with Midwestern history in that I think that Midwestern history in this moment is one that that really um, has that call to hustle and produce excellent work and, and begin to equip others to 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 take up that space and contribute not just to a regional conversation, but to national and global ones too. Great. Wow. That's uh, such a great, maybe a great spot to sort of wrap things up. But I want to thank the three of you for joining me today. Uh, again, for our listeners, uh, I really would encourage you to check out the issue, um, which was published in the fall 2021, more specifically, volume 80, number four. Uh, um, check out these articles and the other incredible essays. And of course, the great 
uh, visuals included throughout the essay uh, or from, in, throughout the issue um, from the local artists as well. Again, thank you for joining me and thank you uh, for your time, everyone. You're very welcome. Welcome.